Hello, and welcome to the Deep Bible Studies podcast, where we discover, explore, examine, and practice the Word of God. I am your host, Claudia Rivera Guevara, and today we will be going through John 6, 1 through 21. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So why would Jesus ask this? Well, he is setting forth an impossible situation. The disciples have seen him do many miracles. John explains that Jesus did so many miracles that even all the books in the world could not hold the amount of stories and accounts for them. So it is clear that there are no possible resources to supply the need for food for the amount of people in the place. Therefore, meaning Christ is the only provider. So in this, we can see that he is testing them. So let's move on to verse 6, which says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus' test is this, and this is quoted from John MacArthur, how much faith Philip had. It would have been a different story perhaps if Philip said, Lord, what are you talking about? Why are you asking me this? You made everything. Without you was not anything made that was made. You are the creator. For all of these months, we've seen you create. Why are you asking that question? But that's not what he said instead. He said in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So this is man's weakness. This is our weakness. We can clearly see this. Verse 8 says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So there is something in this passage that I had actually never noticed before, and Charles Spurgeon explained it beautifully in one of his sermons saying, notice first then the providence of God in bringing the lad there. We do not know his name. We are not told anything concerning his parentage. Was he little, a peddler, who thought that he could make some money by selling a few loaves and fishes and had nearly sold out? Or was he a boy that the apostles had employed to carry the slender provision for the use of Jesus and his friends? We do not know much about him. But he was the right boy at the right place that day. Be his name what it might, it did not matter. He had the barley loaves and the fishes upon which the people were to be fed. Christ never is in need, but he was somebody at hand to supply that need. Have faith in the providence of God. What made the boy bring the barley loaves and the fishes? I do not know. Boys often do uncountable things, but bring the loaves and the fishes he did, and God, who understands the ideas and motives of lads, and takes count even of barley loaves and fishes, had appointed that boy to be there. Again I say, believe in the providence of God. You guys, even in something as simple and seemingly insignificant as a boy bringing a few crackers and fish for lunch, which we do not know if those were his motives, can be used for God's glory. God ordained that boy to be there. This passage should make us jump in joy of our Lord's incredible providence, compassion, and sovereignty, even in the quiet things. God is so incredible, 
Every day we are surrounded and blessed with tokens of his care and providence. Even more we see that God will never abandon his people. He meets the needs of the true church, the body of Christ. But going back to the verse, he says, what are they for so many? And so this is what Charles Spurgeon again said about this verse and this particular question. What are they among so many? So few, so poor, so devoid of talent. What can any of us hope to do? Disdained even by the disciples, it is a small wonder if we are held in contempt by the world. The things that God will honor, man must first despise. You run from the gauntlet of the derision of men, and afterwards you come out to be used by God. Anything that you take away from self and give it to Christ, it is well invested. It will often bring in 10,000%. The Lord knows how to give such reward to an unselfish man that he will feel that he that saves his life loses it, but he that is even willing to lose his life and the bread that sustains it, it is man who after all gets truly saved. Okay, I am not even done with the quote, but that is just, it really strikes me. Is it not our often reflex to save ourselves, to do the most we can for ourselves, to take that last piece of anything? And yet here we see the, like we have talked about many times before, that we are to be open to these things, such as sacrifice, such as suffering, open to them because we know that in the midst of losing our lives, we are actually being conformed into the image of Christ, who he is the wisdom and power of God. But anyways, going back to the quote, it says, God may have brought you where you are to make use of you for the converting of thousands, but you must be converted yourself first. Christ will not use you unless you are first his own. You must yield yourself up to him and be saved by his precious blood. And then after that, come and yield up to him all the little talent that you have and pray him to make as much use of you as he did of the lad with the five barley cakes. Moving on to verse 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat them down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Again, today I'm going to be quoting a lot of Charles Spurgeon, but he says, The loaves do not so much suggest the thought of the lad's sacrifice as of the Savior's power, and we see that right here. Because now, the lad didn't really as much matter as much as what he did. He created out of nothing. These little loaves are nothing apart from him, but in his hands, they are his omnipotence as we see. They are no longer these boys' loaves and fishes, they were Christ's. This miracle is mind-blowing. Let us just ponder upon this because we can definitely just zoom over it like, okay, yeah, he created something out of nothing, but truly putting yourself in the situation, in the shoes of one of those people in the audience just looking at him and suddenly seeing those five barley loaves and couple of fishes and then suddenly multiplied and more and more out of the sheer power and omnipotence that is in him as God. So let us truly ponder upon this. He created fish that never swam in this fallen world, loaves that were never made by fallen hands. He literally created something out of nothing. This is only an attribute God can possess. So again, is this not what John's purpose was in chapter 20, 30 through 31? So that you may believe in his name for who he is? 
Yes. Now, I know I have been quoting Spurgeon a lot, but I have to keep going. He said, there is that brain of yours. It can be associated with the teachings of the spirit. There is that heart of yours. It can be warmed with love of God. There is that tongue of yours. It can be touched with the live coal from the altar. There is that manhood of yours. It can be perfectly consecrated by association with Christ. Hear the tender command of the Lord. Bring them hither, tome, and your whole life will be transformed. I do not say that every man of common ability can rise to high ability by being associated with Christ through faith, but I do say this, that his ordinary ability in association with Christ will become sufficient for the occasion to which God in providence has called him for. I know that you have been praying and saying, I have not this and I have not that. Stay not to the number of your deficiencies. Bring what you have and let all that you are, body, soul, and spirit, be associated with Christ. That is beautiful because it's all about him. That according to the Father's will, he will redeem us, adopt us as his own, and uses us for his glory. Now ask yourself, is the vanity of this world, the self-love, the riches of the world, the fame, the sexuality, the sin, is it really worth not knowing God? not being adopted into his family as his own children and being used by him. Y'all, when I wrote that, I'm not gonna lie to you, it struck me because we are tempted quite every day, especially when you are in Christ, to ponder upon these things and love these things, but that really struck me so hard that my answer to that was no, Christ is all. Everything is garbage, like Paul says. So I pray that your heart will be softened and that you will allow the deep brokenness of sin just lead you to God, not into despair, so that he might clean you and call you his own only because of what Christ did on that cross. So verse 12 then says, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So something else that I have never noticed before, that this was a precise miracle. There was 12 baskets for the 12 remaining disciples and have, and as I have said many times before, God is a God of order. This precision really makes us ponder upon the wisdom and omniscience of God. How I long to know him more and more for I know nothing. I don't need to. What I do want and need is what the hymn in the secret says. In the secret, in the quiet place, in the silence you are there, in the secret, in the quiet hour, I wait only for you, because I want to know you more, I want to know you, I want to hear your voice, I want to know you more, I want to touch you, I want to see your face, I want to know you more. I love that hymn, you guys, it's one of my favorites, but that's what I want. I want to know him, and I pray that you will too. And that is only made possible by the fact that we are reconciled to him by Christ, by repentance and faith, by his grace only, by what he did on that cross, in taking upon your punishment so that you would be credited his righteousness and be able to boldly walk to the throne of God, his throne of grace. Like that is only done because of God's grace. Like it's a full circle. He has grace for you, so he has grace to you so that you might know his grace like that and know him, really. It's all about him. So then verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. They got this from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18 that says, the Lord your God will raise up 
or you a prophet like me, that's Moses talking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command of him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So they were referring to this passage where we can clearly see that the promise is of the coming Messiah, who, like Moses, would receive and preach divine revelation and lead his people. Now, this prophecy was interpreted by these people quite differently, for they thought the Messiah would be a military leader, a liberator of carnal needs and of oppression. That is the Jesus being preached today. He's depicted as a social warrior, as we can see in this passage, specifically of the 5,000. But this is not a new thought, but it is the wrong interpretation. Christ did not come to fulfill man's needs or to be a social justice hero. That is not what he came to be and who he is. No, we can see this in this passage. He leaves them when they force him to become their king against the Romans. Instead, he came to fulfill the Father's will, which is not social justice, it's ultimate justice. It's far greater justice. It's the justice that is against humans' sin. We see the continuation and the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Hebrews 8, 5 through 7, which says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on a better promise. For if that his first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So this is about the covenant, not earthly injustices. Because as we see constantly every day, earthly injustices continue because there will be one day where all will be made right. Jesus has made it all right. Not victory for here, but in eternity. God is the only just judge. We can't judge. And his justice is righteous, so righteous that he didn't just forgive guilty sinners. Instead, he took the punishment that we deserve so that they would be blameless in sight. That's justice, you guys. He didn't just merely do it because he's holy. He took the punishment. He provided reconciliation to him by his grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Justice was served because the innocent son of God bore his wrath so that we wouldn't have to. So that means there's also grace because when we repent and solely put our trust in Jesus, we will be saved and reconciled to God, adopted as his children and delight in him for eternity. That is much greater than any earthly justice. It's much greater justice in general and my hope is completely put on him, not in any sort of justice that we try to invoke because we don't know justice. So Romans 8, 18 through 25 says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free of its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 15 then says, Perceive then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So John MacArthur explains, John supplemented the information in Matthew and Mark by indicating that the reason Jesus dismissed the disciples and withdrew from the crowd into the mountain alone was because of his supernatural knowledge of their interpretation to make him king in light of healing and feeding them. The crowd, incited by the mob enthusiasm, was ready to proceed crassly for political intentions that would jeopardize God's will. So this again, like the Lazarus proves that Christ came as a servant to do the will of the Lord. If Jesus was merely a self-seeking man, this would have been the perfect time to take charge as the king and do earthly desires. Instead, he was here to do the Father's will as fully God and fully man, so he withdrew into the mountain. I know this has been on the longer side, but it's okay because we are now in the last passage and this one's also so beautiful. So this passage is titled, Jesus Walks on Water. So verse 16 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. So Matthew 14, 26 explains why they were afraid by saying, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Added with the fear already that we talked about in the last episode of the depth of the sea and the temperature of the sea, they really thought they weren't going to survive. And now they think there's a ghost approaching them. I really think any of us would be scared. In verse 20 says, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. That's Jesus talking. And then verse 21 says, then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. So Matthew 14, 33 says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So to finish off, I want to quote John MacArthur regarding true discipleship and worship and how they go hand in hand with this passage. He says, Now that is true discipleship. Worship. Go back to John's gospel. So verse 21, they are willing to receive him into the boat. Now, you've got to understand, they've just seen the explosion of miracles. Miracle number one, they're still alive. Miracle number two, Jesus walking on water. Miracle number three, Peter walks on water. Miracle number four, Peter sinks and he is pulled back up to walk on water. The next miracle, Jesus stops the wind. The next miracle, Jesus stops the water. And the next miracle, the boat is at land to which they were going to. What? The boat went from wherever it was, which to the dock of Capernaum. I mean, this is pretty staggering stuff. This is a monumental moment for them because they know who they're dealing with. 
This is the son of God. He's in control of nature. He is in control of his creation. This is what sets true discipleship apart from false. It is all about worship. It is all about declaring him to be the son of God and bowing down to worship him. This was a massively important moment in their lives. You can find more information on our website, www.deepbiblestudies.com, where you will also find the calendar to go along with the book that we will be studying. You can also find us on Instagram, at Deep Bible Studies, and Facebook, where you can know every single time we post a new podcast. Also, we have an email, contact at deepbiblestudies.com, where you can ask us any questions and we will be sure to get back to you. I hope you have a wonderful day and see you next time.